This past uh, couple days, our family was over in the old kind of central part of Boston, Friday and Saturday, a homeschool history trip of sorts, and we were walking the Freedom Trail together. How many of you have walked parts of the Freedom Trail in Boston? If you haven't, haven't been upon it, it's a, it's a two and a half mile pedestrian pathway and it links uh, several different, over a dozen different historic sites, most of them connected in some way to the Revolutionary War. There's Paul Revere's home, there's the Old North Church, there's Faneuil Hall. And so it's a great way to sort of walk through this, uh, this part of our nation's history, and in particular kind of that, that struggle for freedom. Interestingly enough, the, the trail is actually bisected or intersected at one of the points, uh, Park Street Church, which is a, a sister church of ours in the Four Seas, by another kind of freedom trail known as the Black Heritage Trail. And, and that trail goes up into the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Boston, and it identifies and connects significant landmarks that relay the history of Boston's black community as they continued to struggle for freedom in, in the decades and even centuries following the colony's declaration of independence. It's safe, I think, to say that most Americans, if they were asked about their core values, many would list the idea of freedom near, near the top of those values. Right? We build museums that document the, the wars we fought in the name of freedom, we enshrine the documents that proclaim and declare to us our freedoms. And as a nation, we continue to come to grips with and, and wrestle with the recognition that freedom for some has not always meant freedom for all. Right? Sometimes our freedom has come at the exclusion of others. So freedom, it, it turns out, is valuable to most of us but we don't always share the same definition of freedom. And there's not always the, the same recognition of, of how we arrive at that freedom. Freedom is something I think all of us instinctively want to possess. Right? We want it for ourselves. What we're less inclined to acknowledge is that freedom also requires something from us. Or as I think the scriptures would teach, freedom requires something within us to be done to us. There is a transforming, a growing work that is necessary for freedom to result. Freedom is connected. It requires growth. So today I've asked you to turn to the book of Galatians with me. Galatians chapter 5, and I think parts of this are, are a familiar passage to us that speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm particularly interested in how Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, connects these two ideas of freedom and growth. How are they intersected? Let me pray for us as we open up the Word of God together. Lord Jesus, we confess that it's in you we live and move and have our being. You are the source of life. You are the creator and author of life. 
We also need your help to lead us further into it, to recover the intention and the beauty and the freedom of the life you have intended us to walk in. Lord, would you direct us now with the words of my mouth as I preach, with the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, throughout this series, I'm dropping you into a new passage of Scripture, which is a dangerous thing to do because there's not always time for context. But, but quickly, the, the backdrop of Galatians is, is really a letter all about freedom. It's a big deal to Paul in this letter. We see the, the, the words or the theme of freedom appear in chapter 2, again in chapter 3, again in 4, and again here at the start of chapter 5. And the reason was that Paul writes this letter because a group of Christians within the early church had visited some of the the church plants that Paul had started, and in particular the church in Galatia, which were predominantly Gentile groups of people. And they had begun to teach that in order for a a Christian to to sort of persist or, or maintain an authentic Christian identity, they had to also then adopt the customs and rituals of the Jewish law like particular food rites, and in particular, the the practice of circumcision for men. Paul is resisting that that move in the early church to to return to or to adopt wholesale the Jewish law. And throughout this letter, he fights fiercely against adding any extra requirement to belong to Christ, to be a, a person of God. He says that, In Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus now, we are all children of God on the basis of faith. So Paul is is clinging to this idea of what it means to be truly free. To resist things that, that are not or do not lead to real freedom. And so he picks this up again in chapter 5 here in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Verse 16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit. You are not under the law. There's a a lot happening in these few verses, really in the argument of Paul throughout Galatians. And there's this this sort of complex list of factors, right? There's there's this tension between faith uh, and, and the law and freedom and the law. There's this dynamic between what Paul calls the flesh 
and the Spirit. And so to, to kind of navigate all of, all of the things that are happening here, we need a clear-minded, a sure-footed guide to help us sort of unpack these things. And one of the best sort of contemporary guides in this area of, of spiritual growth in the American church, I think, has been the philosopher Dallas Willard, who uh, only recently passed away. But throughout his career as a, as a writer and a thinker and a teacher, Willard studied at length this, this, uh, this idea of how we grow as spiritual persons into freedom and how we navigate these tensions between the flesh and the spirit. And according to, to Paul here in Galatians, according to Dallas Willard as well, the conflict, the confusion that, that we discover within us is that, that we're not certain which of these two things, which of these two guides will lead us to the freedom we desire as people. Will the flesh bring about freedom for us? Or can we follow spirit into freedom? And how Dallas Willard uh, sort of summarizes each of those things. He says, on one hand, we have the flesh, which is, is sort of our natural desires to do what we feel in a given moment. Now, that's not to say the flesh is always bad, right? We've been given desires for a reason. There, there's part of what our, our sort of bodily or, or natural desires are inclined to that is, is God-given, but often we find what we desire to do in, in a particular moment in contrast with what our, our will or with our human spirits discern might be best in a given moment. Right? The will is trying to, to think through and to navigate and discern what would be best, what is good, and our flesh emphasizes what we desire to do. The problem, though, is that often... Not always, but often they are pulling us in different directions. Right? Take, take uh, an example. Let's say you've been at work all day, you come home, you're tired, and you sit down on the couch. Right? And, and your flesh just wants to veg out. You want some quiet, you want to be left alone, you just need your own space. But with your will or with your spirit, you discern that there's someone in that household, a roommate or a family member, that wants to connect with you or talk with you about something important to them. Right? Our, our flesh and our spirit are, are sending to us mixed signals. Right? What do we need to attend to? What do we need to choose? Which one of these concerns wins out? And the way we resolve those tensions looks differently based on, on what we think is, is the best guide. There's, there's one school of thought that would say the best way, the surest course to freedom is, is to sort of remove obstacles that get in the way of our flesh. Right? Do what we feel like. Do what we desire. That's the, the surest pathway to satisfaction. And this is what Paul in verses 13 and 16 here calls indulging or gratifying the desires of our flesh. Right? I want this, I desire this, so therefore I should do it. And that, on the face of things, can feel like freedom, right? Because it eliminates obligation. 
It eliminates responsibility. It eliminates outside authority. Freedom is the freedom to do what we like. Now, most of us probably are unlikely to profess that kind of freedom as a core value. We recognize maybe it's, it's uncomfortably selfish. But we might be surprised at how often that internal desire to get what we desire, to get what we want, how often that ends up deciding our choices for us. Paul says in verse 17, much of the time, our flesh compels us to do what is contrary, both contrary to our own spirits, to our own wills, but also things that are contrary to the spirit of God that would work upon us and within us. Why does that happen? Why does the flesh so often win out? Dallas Willard calls uh, calls this our embodied will. It's it's the sort of settled habits of, of choosing a thing again and again and again. So that over the course of time, we act without thinking from our flesh, from our our given desire in a moment. He gives the example of someone hurts you, you want to lash out and hurt them back. Or you see something that is desirable and, and you move toward possessing that thing. You find yourself bored, you seek out stimulation in that moment. Or you find yourself under a great deal of stress and you easily get angered and, and bark at someone else. Right? This, this sort of fleshly and embodied will over time becomes almost like an instinct. So that, that before we know it, the, the desires that we possess within us are translated into actions. And you and I can probably all list times where we say things, we do things, we choose things, that if we, if we asked you 10 minutes before that, would you want to respond in this way? You'd say, no, I would not desire to act in that way, but we do it anyway. Right? We don't know how to stop ourselves from doing these things, responding in these ways. Right? I, I see this in myself on a daily and a weekly basis. Beginning in verse 19, Paul describes a list for us of what he calls the the acts of the flesh. And I think what he means here is, is that if we simply surrender ourselves to whatever it is we desire to do, what our flesh feels like doing, over time, this is what we're growing. This is what we're cultivating. He says, now the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity, debauchery, right? There's this kind of unrestrained desire. Idolatry and witchcraft, a direction of desires in the area of worship. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, it's probably unlikely that, that we see all of these acts of the flesh that Paul describes, or works of the flesh, confronting us daily or, or personally on a regular basis. But I bet at least one or two of these things frequently hit your, your radar in a given week. Right? At least a few of these things you, you see kind of working beneath the surface in you and, and occasionally popping out. But I don't think what Paul is, is primarily interested in here is, is a checklist of sin. There are many things that aren't listed here that are, that are also part of our human brokenness. What Paul is, is driving at, what he wants us to notice, is that all of these works, all of these acts, have the same source. They run on the same fuel, Paul says. All of these things come from... Com- come from kind of a a root place of letting the flesh, letting our desire be the thing that leads us, the thing we trust to to deliver us freedom and satisfaction. It's believing that that our desire, our our own selfish desire, is, is primary in pursuing freedom. But as Paul points out, ironically, the more we do what the flesh desires, the more conflicted and and chaotic we actually become within our own flesh, within our own bodies even. Desire is pitted against desire. And so rather than actually gaining freedom, we become enslaved by desire. As Dallas Willard puts it, we perish through internal disintegration. We have so many things pulling in so many different directions that that we disintegrate. We never arrive in that freedom we desire. As Paul warns us at the end of verse 21, those who live like this will not, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is, is not about these things. It doesn't run on these things. It has a different root source. So the question is, if that's not a way to pursue the freedom we desire, the integration we desire, the healing we desire, then what is? And if you brought with you your scripture journals, let me invite you that the answer comes here in verses 22 through 25. And if you'd like to write that out, these are great verses to meditate on and even memorize this week. This is how we gain freedom. Verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. You wouldn't need a law against these things, right? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, because the Spirit is the source of our life, since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. In essence, 
Paul says, freedom is being surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Or as verse 25 puts it, freedom is following the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. It's it's an active, it's a living, it's a growing experience where our bodies and our wills and our desires come under a new kind of leadership. We're no longer being led just by what we want in a given moment or what will give us what we desire in in a particular circumstance. We're being led by the Spirit of God. And so another way of putting that is that freedom comes through spiritual growth. Last week and this week, we've been drilling down into this core value of growth. And at JCC, we've, we've said we value growing through the Holy Spirit toward fruitful maturity. That this is something we should expect, something we should desire together in the life we share. Go on to say that spiritual growth invites our cooperation with God's Spirit to bring ongoing transformation, healing, reconciliation, and sanctification in us. So I think verses 22 and 23 here in Galatians 5, they're they're a depiction, they're an illustration of what that fruitful maturity comes to look like as we begin growing. He says, we become persons whose flesh and spirit, it's not like our flesh gets eliminated, but our our flesh gets gets brought into it. It comes under the leadership of God's spirit. And we become rooted in Christ. We, We find our belonging in his person. And as we do that, the spirit produces in us these fruits, or fruit. It's actually a singular. Right? There's, there's one fruit of the Spirit that has all of these expressions. We become filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Right? Just... just reading through the list of things. Those are, those are things that, that don't pull us in 12 different directions. They unify us. They integrate us. They center us upon what God desires to do in us, to grow in us. But the question is, how do we grow? What do we do? How do we get there? How do these things begin to take root? Well, let me maybe start with what we're not meant to do with this list. What we are not meant to do is to take the the list of the fruits of the Spirit and make them into a new law or series of of expectations. This is not a to-do list. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on Galatians, says, We have this tendency, when we get to this list, to forget everything we just read about freedom. The whole context of this letter is about freedom in Christ. And so... Our propensity is to grab hold of this list and make it a new kind of spiritual legalism. Here are all the good Christian behaviors, and now use all the willpower you have available to you to make yourself do them. 
And Scott McKnight says that actually puts us back in charge of spiritual growth rather than the Spirit of God. Right, so this isn't a list of, of to-dos. Dallas Willard similarly cautions us not to confuse the fruit of the Spirit with behavior modification. He says, yes, the Holy Spirit will change our behavior. He desires to change our behavior, but that's an, an unintended consequence, or, or it's, it's an effect, Willard says. It's not the cause of spiritual growth. The change of behavior is an effect, not a cause of spiritual growth. Instead, what the Spirit is after, Dallas Willard says, is a pervasive condition of the entire person. How much better is that? Whole person change. And he says that spiritual maturity actually comes when righteousness begins in the heart level and works its way out to the level of behavior rather than vice versa, right? So often we want to attach righteousness to, to observable external behaviors that we can, we can demonstrate, I've done it, check the box. But Willard says we have to, to receive the righteousness of God. It has to settle into our desires, into our bones, into our bodies. We have to, to practice them through spiritual disciplines, we have to invite the Spirit to transform our hearts and our desires, and then, and only then, over time, we'll see the Spirit begin to transform our behaviors. But we can't shortcut the process. The goal is not to become people who appear to do all the right things. The goal is to live in an entirely new way. The goal is to be led by Paul says, to be controlled by, to have our whole selves submitted to the freedom of God's spirit. That's how you grow. And so if that's what we're after, if that's what you're after, is new life in the spirit, free life in the spirit, Paul has one more little thing to say in verse 24. <laughs> it's not an easy thing, unfortunately. He says that in order for us to live in a new way, we have to die in a particular way first. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Again, this is not about willpower. As Dallas Willard jokes, it's awfully hard to crucify yourself. You don't have enough hands for the job, he says. And you know, add to that the weakness of our will, the strength of our own flesh to, to choose what we want, right? On our own, Paul says, we're hopeless to do this work of dying and new living. But here's the gospel. The gospel proclaims you are not on your own. Verse 24 says, you belong to Christ. When you come into Christ Jesus, when you've put your faith into Christ Jesus, when you were baptized into Christ Jesus, his spirit was poured out upon you. He's put within you, Paul says, a spirit that cries out, Abba and Father. And so we know we belong to him. 
And so we can't crucify ourselves on our own or through our own willpower, but we can surrender to the spirit that is already within us. We can choose to rely on that spirit. We can set our mind through through scripture and through meditation and through prayer on the realities of that spirit. We can make a habit of petitioning that spirit that lives within us to help us grow. We offer to God our flesh, our desires, our actions, our choices each day. We say, lead us. Have, Have your spirit leading us in a fresh way. And in that way, we make space for that, that renovating, healing, reconciling, transforming work. I want to finish with, with one last reminder. Last week, we gave you an invitation to practice growth in a, in a kind of tangible way. And there are, I think, still about 25 or 30 of these little pots outside And there are some seeds. These are microgreens. So you'll get a salad out of the deal if you do this. That's not, that's a, that's a side effect. It's not the source of growth. The idea is, is to take those seeds and to, to plant them in the pot. There's soil out there you can use if you need it. But as you do that, to make that an act of, of praying, of yielding, of inviting the spirit to grow within you. And to begin to lead you. And I would, I would encourage you to be as specific and concrete as possible. What is one area of, of the flesh? What's one area that feels disordered or, or unfruitful in your life that you're, you're particularly asking for the Spirit's help in? And so as you plant that, you pray that prayer. Lord, grow me in this place, in this way. I'm, I'm asking you to lead me. And then every couple days, you'll need to keep these, these seeds wet. And as you, as you come back to water that, that plant, make that an occasion for prayer, even if it's two minutes, three minutes. What issue, as you're asking the Spirit to lead you, might he be revealing in your heart, in your desires? Can you pause for a moment and just invite the Spirit, ask the Spirit to give you love or peace or patience or kindness or gentleness or self-control or, or any of these fruits that you particularly need to grow. And then also listen carefully if there's a step of obedience. Right? Something you need to do. Something the Spirit would, would go before you and say, this is, this is how you follow my lead. As we think about being persons led by the Spirit and belonging to Christ Jesus. Let me invite you to feed on the source of that life, which is Jesus himself.